forever. Dog. Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of this Writer's Panel podcast. Hope you're all doing all right with the world being a monstrous hellscape right now. You may have noticed that we've slowed releases of the podcast for the time being. Honestly, it's just too difficult to muster up the wherewithal to record them. I think, like a lot of you, I'm having trouble focusing. I'm having trouble wanting to do anything that doesn't make a difference in the world. And much as I enjoy the conversations, much as I love talking with writers about writing, it's hard enough right now getting my writing work done. So I'm trying to lay off the things that take up too much attention or planning. But I do have some new episodes for you, which I think are really interesting. Back in March, my friend Martha McGee reached out to say she's teaching a class at DePaul University in Chicago called Topics of Television, The Showrunner. The class takes a look at different showrunners, their interests, styles, and how they've contributed to pushing television storytelling forward. And Martha asked if I knew anyone who might want to answer questions from the students about showrunning and TV storytelling. I thought this was a great opportunity to get some real questions from real new writers, folks who want to do this professionally, who want to be in television, but maybe don't have an idea of where to begin, the kinds of questions I really haven't been able to ask since we stopped doing the live episodes, the ones we, you know, we would get those questions from audience members. So I asked Martha if we could record the conversations, and she and the class agreed. I reached out to four of my favorite showrunners, people whose perspectives I really wanted to hear Uh, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, Stephen Cannells, Kevin Beagle, and Aline Brosh-McKenna all agreed to give their time to the class and answer the students' questions. They really were great conversations. The questions were so smart and so astute. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to these. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Uh, my name is Martha McGee, and I'm here with my, my showrunners class, my virtual showrunners class. Um, we're all at different locations, but we're very pleased to welcome Stephen Canals. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm just going to ask first, like, how are you? How, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm well. Thank you for asking. Um, this was, we were just at the start of season three's production Mm. uh, when the social distancing isolation quarantine began. Um, And I was at, we had, we were about a day away from completing principal photography on our season three premiere. I had just directed three scenes of episode two. And then we were told, okay, we have to, we have to stop production. Um, so it's been about almost, it's like eight weeks now, eight or nine weeks since I've been um, back in LA. And the first, to the first month, the first four weeks or so, like it, it's, it's really interesting what happens to you creatively when you go into production because it's such a different set of muscles that you use. Um, and I'm guessing... I'm going to make an assumption that everyone in your class is a writer. Um, you know, the, the writing part of our industry is very different from being a producer and going into production. And so I was feeling really amped up because production is, is a beast. And, you know, obviously it, it's grueling because it's long, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 hour days on set. Um, and so then to have all of that, it, it felt like someone just came and, and burst the balloon. And so to be back home, it was strange to sort of have all of this energy that you were, you know, accumulating and ready to use on production. And then suddenly to be stuck in a space, um, you know, to be back home and to not have anything to do with all that energy. So that first month was very strange for me because I was feeling Oddly, like the energy went away very quickly and I was feeling creatively depleted. So where I initially thought, oh, I'll have all this time to work on other projects. That wasn't the case. Like I just sort of was like, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, And I just wasn't feeling like nothing was coming. 
Um, and it's only been in the last, I would say, maybe three weeks or so that I feel like I've sort of hit a creative uptick once again. Um, but I think the experience I'm having isn't unique to me. I've ha- I have a lot of uh, writer friends and storytellers in the business and all of us have been sort of in the same boat. You know, everyone's been feeling very creatively depleted. And I think in this period, what's important is just to be very kind to yourself. Well, actually, that, that leads me to, to my, my first big question. Like, what do you do as a showrunner day per day normally? And now what are you doing day to day under these circumstances? Yeah, um, it's, so it runs the gamut. I mean, a, a large part of your job isn't what you would assume it would be. So I think most people assume, you know, show running means you're running the show. So you're in the room and you're breaking story, and you're, you know, writing scripts, you're revising scripts. Um, and that's <laughs> the actual, like, the active, you know, process of writing is such a small part of, of what you wind up doing. You know, it's conversations with the studio and the network. If they have notes on a script, it's having conversations with the heads of your departments, um, you know, so making decisions about the look and the feel and the tone of the show. Um, it's to take a step back. I mean, it's, it's hiring, you know, so it's making decisions about who you want to bring to onto the project to be part of the team. Um, so that's, I mean, that those are sort of the larger um, pieces to, to show running. And then obviously it is once you're in production um, it's engaging your directors Um, whoever you've hired in concept and tone meetings. Um, Because obviously, unless your director is also a producer on the show, typically they're a guest. Um, And this is less complicated in in subsequent seasons, but in the first season of a show, no one has seen it. And so they don't really know what the look and the feel and the tone of a show is. And occasionally you yourself may be still figuring that out. And so... Um, what's really important in tone meetings with your directors is just to make sure that you're communicating to them what it is that you need from them. Um, And then beyond that, once an episode is filmed, then it's spending time in the editing bay with your editors to cut episodes um, and deliver that to the studio. So, you know, that's sort of a a very down and dirty overview of, of what the responsibilities are. So what are you able to do now? Like, um, obviously you can't be with a lot of people, but do you still have the virtual writer's room meetings? Um, and are they as effective, I guess? We've been meeting um, over FaceTime. The Pose writer's room is small. There are only five of us total. Um, so it's myself, Ryan Murphy, Brad Falchuk, um, our Lady J and Janet Mock. Um, and it's been the five of us since the very beginning. So all three seasons, which is rare in this industry. Typically you'll have some changeover when it comes to writing staffs. Um, so that has really been uh, a really beautiful part of the process of writing pose because we all have, um, A, we're all super invested in the characters and the world and we all understand the tone of the show. We understand the voice of the show. Um, But we also have a shorthand with a communicating with one another. Um, And also we know each other's strengths now three seasons in, um, which also is such a benefit to crafting narrative. And so anyway, all that to say that, um, we're always all in communication with one another. So even in periods of time, you know, like bes- between seasons one and two or between seasons two and three, when we're on hiatus and we may not be seeing each other every single day, like we still, you know, we have a, an email chain, um, we have a text thread. So we're always sharing information with each other back and forth and, and discussing like, oh, this might be the possibility for um, a story thread or an arc at some point for X character. And so all that to say that that's maintained during this period of quarantine as well. Um, In addition to FaceTiming, we also have been utilizing um, 
uh, what is it, Google, Google Docs, because you can, um, you can actually write live on Google Docs. And so that's been really great too, because um, as we're all sort of having conversations with one another, like someone can literally just be writing it um, in the moment and then we all have access to it and can see it and review it. And so that's been really great. Um, the bulk of our time, to be honest with you, during this period, especially in the last, you know, two or three weeks has been, we've had a little bit of intel from uh, New York City because there is a, I'm not sure what their exact title is, but I guess like a, a there's a committee that's been put together um, of producers who are working right now to outline what the process and what filming will production will look like once we are able to go back into production. And obviously we will have to wait until New York's because we shoot in New York city. So we'll have to wait until New York city says we are allowing permits again. And so at this point we were told most recently that permits will be allowed beginning post July 31st. Um, but obviously that can shift. So there's a possibility that it could be even, it likely will be later than that. But right now we are earmarked for August 1st as being when permits will once again be allowed. Um, and so what we've been doing in the last couple of weeks is calling through all of the scripts for the season that have already been written and identifying where are there scenes that are going to be problematic for us to film. Um, because, you know, we're hearing that even once permits are allowed and we can go back into production, you know, we aren't going to be able to have, if you've watched the show, you know, we have these big ballroom scenes that have anywhere from 125 to 150 background actors. Um, and so, you know, there's a really high likelihood that the policy will be, you know, you can't have scenes with more than, you know, 10 people. And so if that's the case, we're now having to go through all of our, our scenes and just say, okay, this is a scene that isn't going to work. So for example, like in episode two, I had a scene that I was going to be filming, which was going to take place in a, in a dance, in a nightclub. Um, and so at the moment I'm having to revamp and we're having conversations about what was the intention of that scene um, and how can we sort of rewrite that moment so that the intention of the scene is still there, um, but we're also keeping our cast and our crew safe. Um, Tori, you have a question. Oh, hi. I'm um, sorry. My question was, what instance of censor censorship from the network impacted your show the most? If there was any censorship? Uh, that's a great question. I honestly, there isn't anything that is coming to mind. Um, yeah, the network has been, I mean, FX's... Um, their branding this past year was, you know, fearless. Um, and I think that that is clearly the case when you look at the content that they produce, you know, whether it's Pose or American Horror Story or Atlanta, like I think they're always willing to take big swings. Um, you know, it, it, FX is a, in my mind, and I'm biased obviously because Pose lives there, but it is the network that I always tell creators it's where you want to be. Like you want to work at FX because truly they are, um, they're creator first, you know, like they love voice and they value that most of all. In some ways, maybe even more than story. You know, it's if, if you go in and you pitch, their feeling is going to be, we're as invested in Tori as we are in, the, in your show, you know? And so, they want to know that you have an, a, a very clear um, vision, you know, and a strong sensibility and, and one that is aligned with their values as a network. Um, so anyway, that was a very long-winded way of saying they really haven't ever pushed back on anything when it comes to the show. I think the only time where there was... I, you know, I'll say censorship. And, and in reality, it didn't really come from the network. This more came from standards and practices was there was in the first season, we had a ball scene um, and the category was body. And we had decided, you know, because we obviously want to be body positive, we had plus size women walking. 
And one of those women wound up taking off her top and she had on, I think when we shot the scene, she had on either nipple covers or nipple tassels. I don't remember what she was wearing, um, but you know, it wasn't typically because all of the, the ballroom walkers in our show are actually from ballroom. So while, you know, we'll have certain criteria for what we want within a ball scene, typically like we also want them to have agency as well. Um, and so this was a look that she had walked a ball with before and we were all were like, oh, that's great. We love it. Um, and so we filmed it. And then the feedback coming back from the network was, you know, standards and practices flagged this moment um, because you can't show breasts. And even though the nipples were covered, like, so that was a whole thing. Um, but I think that's probably the only moment that I can think of that was an issue. I think for the most part, like if like last season, season two, um, I directed episode eight. And within the first five minutes of the episode, there's a, a sex scene between two men, um, you know, and I show their body and the network didn't come back and you know, they never balked. They never said, you know, this is something you can't show. So the reality is like, they're very supportive. Uh, Dylan. Yes. Hi. Uh, my question is about, uh, the pitch meeting you had with Ryan Murphy. Uh, mm-hmm. I was just curious, like what that experience was like and how you managed to convince him. Um, so I will, I'll give you a little background on it, which is I wrote the first draft of Pose when I was working on my MFA in screenwriting at UCLA. And this was the very beginning of 2014. Uh, I then... A year later, I signed with managers. Um, and then a year after that was when I met Sherry Marsh, who is my executive producer on Pose. Um, before meeting Sherry, and it's funny, I just recently had my managers do the, the math because they track all of my meetings. So from the point that I signed with them as my managers until I met Sherry Marsh, I had 167 meetings about Pose. And up until meeting Sherry, I hadn't met a single person in the industry who said, this is a project that I want to invest time in developing with you, or this is a pitch that I would like to take out with you. So I was kind of doing the dog and pony show, or as we call it here in LA, the the water bottle tour, right? Where you're going in and out of meetings and you're meeting with execs and And I should know, again, I had 167 meetings, but some of those meetings you would have anywhere from two to three execs. So I met hundreds of people in this industry and really up until Sherry, nobody was interested in this material. Um, It was opening doors, but wasn't keeping me in the room. Little did I know, so summer of 20, this was now summer of 2016. This is now September, actually. So we're coming out of the summer. Um, Ryan was working on acquiring the rights to Paris is Burning, which is a lovely documentary that you can find on Netflix, which is all about the ballroom community in the 1980s. And so it just so happened that as we were going out with the Pose pitch, he was buying the rights to this documentary to develop it into a series. And so since he and I are both uh, represented by the same agency, just through the grapevine, because people are always talking in the industry. and, And the reality is that Hollywood as an industry is really isn't that big. Um, And everybody knows everyone and everyone hears about everything. Um, So he heard that Sherry, who he had known for 20 years at that point, because they had worked together on Popular, um, his first show on on the WB, he reached out to her in the midst. We were about a week and a half into pitching the show at that point um, and just said, hey, I heard that you're out with a project and I would love to meet with you and meet with the writer, um, so send me that script. So when I went in to meet with him, and we only met for 45 minutes, um, he was, at the time, it was a week after, or a week and a half after he had won, like, I don't know, 10 Emmys for The People versus O.J. Simpson. Um, And he was, literally that day, was directing the pilot of Feud, um, which was his limited series with, with Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lang, And so he just took 45 minutes out of his day to come meet with me. And so we sat down and we talked about 
my vision for the show and the world and what I had. And at that point, because I had gone through the, the MFA program at UCLA, I had already mapped out the full season arc. So like I knew I hadn't written it as a Bible officially, um, but, but I knew what all the broad strokes were and was ready to share that within a pitch. And funny enough, like I'd had a, quite a few people say to me going into that meeting, I don't think you should share everything with Ryan because he's developing his own show and you wouldn't want him to steal any ideas and blah, blah, blah. And my feeling was I'm sitting in front of someone who I really idolize in the TV world. And this might really be the only shot I have. And like he, it's funny, but I ended up finding uh, about a year ago, an email that I'd sent to my managers when I first signed with them saying, is there a way to send Pose to Ryan Murphy? Because I think this would be the kind of show he would want to produce. And so I think, and I didn't remember sending that email, but sitting there in front of him, I just felt like, fuck it. Like, this is my one shot to just give everything to you. And like, I'm going to take that shot. So I pitched it all out. Um, and, you know, it was kind of like being two kids in a, on the playground where we were both in the sandbox and we were sharing toys. And he was like, you know, well, here are my ideas for the show. And and then at the end of that meeting, he just sort of looked at me and said, okay, well, we're going to make that together. And then he stood up and he walked out of the room and that was the meeting. Like it was just kind of, and I was really stunned. So I genuinely was like, uh, okay. Like I was very confused partly because of what he said. And also because he just got up and left. And I was like, <laughs> I don't like what just happened. Um, and so it took a minute. It really wasn't until my team called me screaming like, oh my God, you are going to be developing a show at Ryan Murphy that I was like, oh, that's what's happening. And to be honest, even then, I really didn't allow myself to take it in until December when I was, you know, about two and a half months later when I was back in his office and then we were actively breaking story. But up until that point, I kept waiting to get a phone call where someone was going to say either it fell apart or he changed his mind or, you know, that was a dream. But it wasn't. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Bridger, a question. Hello. Um, Hi, how are you? I'm good. I have two questions. Um, they're kind of completely different, but they're both a little bit based off of what you said. So at, at the beginning, you mentioned um, that you, uh, your script or a story idea got you into rooms, but like it wasn't keeping you there. And like you, you went to like 170 meetings. Like, I guess I was a little curious, like how did you even get to that like point, if that makes sense? Like how were you able to get these meetings? Like, were you just like calling executives and like pitching your story or was the, um, yeah, I don't know if like you can elaborate on that a little bit. Um, so the best way for you to, I shouldn't say the best. Let me take that back. I think the easiest way to get generals in the industry is to be represented. So, you know, this is a town where everybody wants everything to be vetted, right? So even now, and I'm not an exec, like I'll get phone calls and emails from people saying, do you know so-and-so? Um, you know, do you have a relationship with them? Um so anyway, so all that to say that the way that I was getting meetings at that point was I had graduated from my MFA program. I'd signed with my management team. So I'm represented by um, Epicenter. And um, my managers, uh, Allard and Jared, had my portfolio, which I want to note that the jury's out on what is going to lead to success in the industry. So whenever I share any information, this is just, it's, I should say, purely anecdotal. It's not scientific, um, but it's coming from not just my own experience, but the experiences of people around me who have also had success. So all that to say, I think that some folks would tell you, you need to have this like big, huge, massive body of work. The reality is my whole career is built on the strength of two pilots. So where I came out of UCLA having written... I think I wrote eight, eight scripts, I think eight, eight or nine scripts when I came out of my, pro and I was in the UCLA MFA program for three years. Um, but the only two things that I ever showed my manager were the original draft of, of my Pose pilot. Um, and then another pilot that I wrote that I saw as a companion piece to Pose, which was also a, a 80s New York period piece. Um, and so all that to say that 
the post pilot is what they were sending around. So as my managers would articulate it, they decided, they identified Pose as my like lead sample is what they would call it. So that was the thing that they were sending around town. So they just sent it to everyone and said, look, we represent this really great writer. They would send out the a copy of, of the Pose script. And then they would also send like um, my biography, like a really short biography about a paragraph, just saying who I am. Um, and so it was off of the biography and then people reading the script that I was then getting all of the meetings. So typically it'll be that way. Um, I mean, you obviously can also get meetings in this industry by recommendation, you know? So like if someone, you know, um, has a connection to different studios or networks or production companies, they may say, Hey, I have a friend that I want you to meet with, um, you know, an up and coming storyteller or, or filmmaker, um, you should connect. But I think what I, what I would recommend for you, and are you a writer? Um, I, I'm actually not necessarily, but I mean, I, I do write, of course, just like being a film student and like, what's your, like, what's the, the long-term goal for you though? Um, probably directing. Okay. So I think like what's going to be important for you then is to make sure that you like, unless you plan on writing, like being like a proper auteur and writing your own material, you're going to want to make sure that you find and, and build organic um, strong connections with writers or a writer who becomes your collaborator so that you then can go off and film a short or something. Cause the reality is I think what often happens and I, I have, I have this experience quite a bit now post pose where I meet people who obviously we all have a desire to make it in this industry and to tell story. And so I understand because I was that person I moved to LA eight years ago. It'll be eight years in September at the age of, I was going to be 32 when I moved here. Um, and I underst- And I had a whole other career. I worked in education for 10 years before moving to Los Angeles. So I understand that like breakneck pace of like wanting to break in and wanting the career to start immediately. And the thing I always tell people is pump the brakes, slow down, make sure that you have really strong material backing up the passion right? So like, you cannot come to me and say, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I want to be a director. I'm ready. You know, put me on something. And then when I say, well, can I see a sample? You don't have one, which I think I see often, particularly with writers. It's like, oh my God, I, I'm ready to be staffed. I, you know, I have a great idea for a show. And then I'm like, well, like send the sample over. And it's like, oh, I'm still working on something. You know, so my recommendation is, you know, make sure that you take the time to like really hone your craft and your voice um, and work on, I'm not as familiar when it comes to directing. I think with a director, you probably could have just one short film and that be enough. But I think with writers, you want to have at least two scripts because when it comes to the writing, um, most execs, agents, managers, they're going to read your work and then immediately they're going to say, do you have another sample? Because they want to make sure that you're not a one-hit wonder, right? They just want to know, okay, you have the ability to, like your voice goes beyond just this one particular piece. Um, At least in terms of the directors I know, typically I've seen them make headway with just one film. Um, But I think what's important is that you have that body of work, you know, like have that piece that really represents who you are as a filmmaker so that you're telling the industry who you are um, and also can show what your skills are. It's one thing to talk about what your skills are. You know, I'm really great as a whatever X is, a writer, a director. It's a whole other thing to say, I have a piece that actually shows you what I'm capable of doing. That's very helpful. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. I also should add, and this is for all of you, so there's a really great book. Um, So Carol Kirshner is someone who runs the CBS diversity, the CBS Writers Diversity Program. And she has a book called The Hollywood Game Plan. And in The Hollywood Game Plan, there's a particular uh, chapter where she talks about having your own A story. And so I think to go back to your original question about um, meetings and, and pitching and pitching yourself, I really recommend checking out that book and specifically that particular chapter because I think one of the other things I see happening in the industry for uh, folks just coming, just arriving, is that 
there's a incongruence between who I'm saying I am as a storyteller and then my work. So for example, when I graduated from UCLA, when I was pitching myself, I was always saying, my name is Stephen Canals. You know, I grew up in, in the Bronx, in New York City in the 1980s. This was in the midst of both the crack and AIDS epidemics. Um, you know, despite all of the, uh, you know, despair and, and, and as difficult and bleak a time as it was for New York, I still had a lot of love and I had a really incredible family, which is why I'm interested in telling urban family drama. And then I had two samples, both Pose and then my other pilot called Hope Projects that showed you that I am an expert at telling urban family drama. So that's the kind of thing that you all want to make sure that you're working on. You know, you want to ensure that you're synthesizing your voice and the material so that if you're coming to me and you're saying, you know, I love telling coming of age dramas, you're not then showing me a film that is, you know, a horror film. It's like, well, where's the connect between you giving me a horror film and you saying that you like to tell coming of age dramas and then whatever your personal story is. Um, so find the connective tissue between all of it. Um, actually, I did have uh, just a quick follow-up. Mm. Um, with those uh, 167 meetings, did any of the executives say, this is interesting, but could you change it? And were they, was anyone interested in changing it to make it more you know, network-friendly for them? Um, and did you ever consider it or I mean how hard would is it to just have this idea and not and keep it pure keep it to what you wanted to to have the show be there were a couple people there were a handful of folks very early on who said I feel like you would get further with this material if it were a feature but my feeling was I didn't conceive this narrative as a feature and I didn't there are so many themes embedded in Pose. And if you watch the show, you know that it isn't just one thing. Like, it isn't just a show about queer people. It isn't just a show about trans people. It isn't just a show about survival. It isn't just a show about family. You know, it isn't just a show about the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, it, it really is about all of it. And so I didn't... I was having a really hard time conceiving how I would be able to fit all of that into a two-hour movie. Something was going to have to go. It just felt like it was too... There just wasn't enough real estate for me. Um, and so at that point, I thought, no, I'm going to stick to my guns. Like, this is a television show. This isn't, this isn't a movie. Um, I think that was probably the only answer your question that was really the only feedback that I received I think for the most part when I went into networks though like generally they weren't asking me to change it I think partly because it was it's based on a real community so there really wasn't a world where they would say you know like can you make all the characters straight like that wasn't something that ever came up I don't think anyone tried to sanitize the narrative um, I did have a couple of folks ask and push back against why I had it as a period piece. Because the reality is in the industry, when it comes to television, period pieces are harder to make and they're more expensive. Um, so there was that. I think there were quite a few people who were like, why don't you make it a modern story? Um, but again, I felt like, you know, the thing that I really love about historical pieces is that it's a way for us to reflect on our past and hopefully in an effort to then make, change in our future. Um, and to me, I saw the, the direct connect between what was happening in the 80s um, amidst the HIV AIDS epidemic and what we're dealing with today, um, particularly as a queer and trans community. And so I, at no point did I ever think, yeah, I'm going to change it. Hi. Um, so Hello. I know the second season of Pose, like it focuses a lot on the HIV and AIDS crisis of the early like, 1990s. Um, how accurate did you want the show to be about the actual events, like especially the ACT UP um, protests that happened? Mm. Did you want it to be the same? Because like I noticed um, like doing research that it was like 
sort of the same. Like you could see some uh, similarities in I think that our, I mean, here's the thing. This is something that Ryan Murphy said to me very early on in the process of working on the show. Um, So when I was at UCLA, um, one of my professors would always tell me, you know, there's truth with a big T and then there's truth with a little T. And I used to get really caught up on truth with a big T, you know, with, with a capital T. It's like, I want everything to be real. I want everything to be grounded. Um, and the thing that Ryan said to me is when we started working on poses, um, heads up, like this is a television show. It isn't a documentary. So all that to say, I think it was important for pose to be grounded in real emotion. Um, and I think our show is in conversation with real events. Um, but, you know, we take creative license is basically, you know, the short version. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, but for the most part, I think even if we, um, you know, we remix events, um, the reality is that the, the intention and the emotion behind what we're writing and, and those moments is real. Um, Bridger, you want to do your, your follow-up question? Yeah, sure. So I guess um, you were mentioning uh, about how, like, obviously Paris is Burning is a, like a huge influence on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any other influences um, either for Pose or, or just like in general um, as a screenwriter, um, either in television or um, film? Uh, as in like, were there specific shows that influenced? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this might seem like a cop-out answer, but I think everything I've watched has influenced the show in some capacity. Um, I can't right now in the moment like draw a, co- a direct connect for you between something I was watching at that point and pose, but I will say like I've always loved I've just always loved like a family, a good family drama you know, and it doesn't matter how, it could be as grounded and groundbreaking as Six Feet Under it could be um, soapy like a, a melodramatic, like a to go back a couple years, like Party of Five or um, maybe more recently, like Grey's Anatomy. I mean, it runs the gamut, but like for me, I mean, like as a little boy growing up, like I love the original, like 1986 version of, or 1985 version of like the Transformers. You know, like I was that kid that grew up in the eighties watching Transformers and Ninja Turtles and Thundercats. And like, the reality is if you watch all of those cartoons now, those animated series, like at their core, all those shows are about family. You know, like I watched the first season recently, I rewatched the first season of Transformers just cause, and it's like, you know, you have like all these Autobots and they were on Cybertron and then they, you know, crash land on this planet called earth. And if you watch the original 1980, I think it's 84, 85 pilot, that first three part episode of the animated Transformer series, like the whole arc that first season is about one particular character called Mirage wanting to get back to Cybertron. Like, he just wants to get back home. You know, like, and sure, it's an animated cartoon about robots in disguise, but the reality is, like, that's a very elevated and adult theme, and that's something that anybody coming into it, whether you like that show or that cartoon or not, that's something that anybody can connect to. You know, like, that's something that's very universal. It's like, I know what that feels like to to be an outsider, to be, to feel like a, to feel like an alien, in a land that is unfamiliar to you, you know? And so that's really to me what that first episode is about. And anyway, all that to say that I think, you know, there are lots of shows that have impacted me and the type of stories I like to tell. And so I think Pose to me is directly connected to all of them. I think you could pull out any show that I used to watch and that I've loved. I think, you know, like Lost is another one. You know, Lost is another show about a bunch of people who are just surviving. And I don't see the different, that much of a difference between 
you know, Jack and Locke and all those characters surviving on this weird ass island any different than all of my characters once again surviving on a weird ass island. You know, their island is called Manhattan and on Lost, their island is like the Dharma Project. But to me, that's exactly the same. You know, so the the specifics of the narrative may be different, but emotionally and thematically, it's all connected. So I think, you know, um, you didn't necessarily ask this question, but um, to go back to your earlier question around like getting meetings and then work and thinking about how to connect all of that. I think what's important for all of you is to think about what are your values? What are the things that are the most important to you? Um, and then finding a way to infuse that in all of your work. You know, I know for me, you know, family is, is a theme I'll always be exploring. I'm, I'm really fascinated by ideas of resilience, specifically for communities that often don't have a voice and are not supported, you know. So it's not by chance that my work typically will center women or people of color or LGBT people, you know, because those are the folks who tend to be the most disenfranchised. Um, so I'm very fascinated by like people who don't have any resources available to them. How do they still manage to find a way to survive and then thrive? You know, so I think those are those bigger questions that you'll find, you know, 15 years from now, when you have a huge thriving career, you'll be able to look back at your work and you'll be like, oh shit, like there are all these very specific themes that are constantly coming up in my work over and over again. Um, you know, something, my, my partner is, an, is a fine artist and one of his mentors is this well-known uh, artist named Mary Kelly. And one of the things that she talks about is that in the art world, everybody has a capital P project, right? And your project is, is lifelong. And I agree. I think that that's the same thing for those of us who are creatives who work in film and TV. So I, for me, ideas, it's funny. I just did a, an interview recently. Um, and that question was asked of all of us, you know, like where does story generate from? And everyone in the interview said for them, story generates from character. Um, and I don't disagree with that, but the thing I added is I was like, actually, for me, before I even get to character, my for me, story always generates first from a bigger question that I'm asking. So there's something that I'm pondering. There's some question or, or problem that I'm trying to work through and that I'm trying to resolve for myself. And then out of me asking that question and trying to find an answer for it, character and story then emerges. Um, but all of my questions always sort of stem from the same places, you know? Um, so anyway, all that to say, you know, spend some time really thinking about, you know, your values and who you are and what you want to say in the world. Cause I think it's funny, like that might seem like a really big heady idea. And the reality is even if you want to make like, you know, comedies with like fart jokes, the reality is like, that's still embedded in all of that as well. You know, one of my really close friends um, is, is Bo-Yan Kim, and she is, she's a producer on Star Trek Discovery, and she's actually one of the creators of the Michelle Yeoh spinoff that CBS All Access is working on. And one of the things that she said when we were at UCLA together that deeply resonated with me is when we met, everyone knew her as like the sci-fi girl, right? And she was like, I love to tell stories about spaceships and I love stories that take place in outer space. And like, that was kind of her thing. And we were on a panel together at one point and she articulated that when she was a little girl, she grew up in Korea and her father was a diplomat and they moved around a lot. And so because they always moved, she always felt like an outsider. And so part of the reason why she loves and is attracted to writing stories about being in outer space and specifically people on spaceships traveling is that for them, for those characters, they're always outsiders and they're always heading to new foreign lands. And emotionally that connects for her because she knows what that feeling is because that was the experience she always had as a young girl, you know? And so even though you would look at her work on Star Trek and you would say, oh, it's just a sci-fi show where people are, you know, phasing in and out and, for her, there's a much deeper thematic and emotional connection to those narratives. 
So those are the kinds of things that you all need to be thinking about as you're thinking about your voice and, and deciding what kind of work you want to present to the world. Um, hey, Miles. I just wanted to ask, like, kind of on par with the idea of developing your voice um, and, like, some of the influences that you've kind of established throughout the years, do you think, um, like you mentioned before, like your careers before film, uh, like doing education for 10 years and stuff like that, do you think that might have shaped your, uh, like, creative process, like, in Hollywood? Like, do you think um, had you went into film a little earlier, things would have went dif differently? Like, uh, how do you think that might have kind of shaped your career, like deciding to go in at a, at a later age as opposed to going in like super young and early? That is a great question. Um, I, uh, I'll put it to you this way. I am someone who has a lot of ambition and you know, once I've made my uh, decision, like once I've made my mind up about something, it's like, you know, full steam ahead. So I have no doubt if I had come to LA at a younger age that I would have at some point made it to this point in my career. I probably would have spent a lot more time though languishing and, uh, you know, I, I'm grateful for the experience that I had. I think the reality is, you know, I graduated from college and part of the reason why I didn't pursue it is like, I'm a very self-aware person. So I think that's part of it is that I just, I knew I had a strong sense that if I go pursue this now coming out of college at 24, um, that it's just not, I, I don't know. I think there was something that just was telling me it's not going to work. Like you just aren't, prepped you aren't ready um and while i don't know that i would say i actively spent those i spent nine years working in higher education seven of those years as a professional um you know and i and i talked to a lot of folks you know like i was working as a college administrator during that time and so you know a lot of my life then really to be honest isn't that different than what my life is now meaning you know i was doing a lot of listening and i think for any of you who want to be writers um really 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 important skill for you to work on is active listening um because really i think as a storyteller ultimately your job is to be a mirror and to reflect back humanity to people so for me what i need to do is i need to just sort of be a vessel to take in people's stories um, and then I find a way to reflect that back uh, creatively. Um, but all that to say that I think that's a lot of what I was doing when I worked in higher ed. But that period of time, I just, I needed to grow up, you know, like I needed to develop. Um, like I needed a thicker skin. Um, I needed to figure out what my intention was. Like, I think coming out of college, and I, I studied cinema as an undergrad, right? And at the time, I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. Like, I wanted to direct. I, I didn't really have aspirations to be a screenwriter, um, specifically. And I think at that time, like, my goal was, like, I want to move to L.A. I want to make, like, millions of dollars. I want to win an Oscar. Like, that was the goal for me at that point. And I think, yeah, I would have probably come to L.A. and fallen on my ass really hard. Because the reality is, like, that's... I guess for some people that is a goal, but the reality is like, if that's your only goal, then my feeling is like, do something else. Like this business is like too cutthroat. It's too hard. It's too much work. Like you have to have a real strong passion and a desire to tell story, you know? And I think what I needed was in that period of my twenties and stepping into my early thirties was I needed to redefine success for myself so that for me, success becomes just having an opportunity to tell a story, knowing that I'm going to get to change lives, you know, hopefully, again, like I said earlier, reflecting back our humanity, like all of those are my goals, you know, the, the having the career where you're making lots of money and winning awards, all of that, that's the cherry on top. That's the extra. Hmm, I was just wondering, uh, once you're done with those, what are your hopes and game plan for the future? Do you hope to start marketing that other pilot that you have, or do you want to move on to something altogether new? Um, so um, I signed an overall deal with 20th, with 20th TV 
in January to develop new projects with them. Um, so I have uh, two projects right now that I'm actively in development on with them, which is really exciting. Um, and then one project that I'm overseeing. So I'm not writing it. I'm just um, supervising the, the writer and the creator of that show. Um, so yeah, so I have a couple things on in the pipeline that I'm working on and hopefully, you know, knock on wood, um, you know, the networks that we take it out to are interested and want to buy them and, and put them on the air. Um, so yeah, so I'm really excited about developing new projects and not just my own projects, but like I mentioned with the piece that I'm supervising, you know, like I really want to be able to hold the door open and let more folks into the industry as well. So, um, and then in terms of that other piece specifically that you asked for, for hope projects, um, it is it's something that I want to develop at some point. It's um, that piece because it's autobiographical. Um, it's it, like, it's very, very, very personal to me. Cause it's really, it's, it's me and my parents story of, of survival in, in New York. And so uh, that's one that I like, that one's very precious to me. So I don't, I don't know exactly when, I think one of the things I've learned is timing is everything in this industry. And like, there are cycles, um, you know, and right now coming out of, and part of, part of the cycle of this industry, which is, it's tricky right now because of what's happening with COVID-19 is you kind of have to always be like one step ahead of the audience. And so, you know, my feeling is I don't think coming out of coronavirus that, audiences are going to be looking for like hard drama. You know, I think that audiences are probably going to be looking for stories that are like um, more uplifting and make us feel good about ourselves and humanity. And so that's really where my brain has been is, you know, like I'm trying to lean out of, cause I think my general MO in spite of what you may see on pose is I tend to write much darker material. Um, and so I'm just, I'm trying to figure out like, you know, what is the kind of story that audiences are going to be most attracted to right now? The other thing too, just to add to that though, is like networks will also dictate the material, right? Because you can go out with a show. Like I had something that I was working on recently that I was really excited about. And then my team at 20th went and talked to different networks just to find out if people would be interested in that material. And the feedback was, that's not what they're looking for at the moment. You know, so sometimes as a result, you kind of put a pin in a project and you say, okay, like that's one I'll just get back to once the cycle kind of gets back around to those types of stories. Yeah, that's, that's interesting about, I, I think that that's right. People are not going to be interested in seeing real hard drama after being so traumatized um, with the pandemic. So, um, and things do ebb and flow, um, things change in, in cycles. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. Well, and I've he I've heard some pushback on that because I think if you look at what's been most popular during this period, like everybody at the beginning of quarantine was watching Tiger King on Netflix, for example. But my argument, I guess my counter argument to that argument is, right, but everybody currently is in lockdown. And I think at this point, people are just wanting to watch anything, right? So whatever you give to an audience in this current period, they're going to be like, I'm going to watch it because people just want to not have to think about what's happening right now, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and listening to this administration that has no idea what it's doing. So I think, you know, as a result, it's like, just give me content, whatever it is. But I think once coming out of, you know, this period when audiences uh, and, and all of us as individuals have the freedom to be out and traveling again, and there's a little more agency and choice when it comes to content, I'm not convinced that audiences are still going to be leaning towards dark. Well, I, I think Vanessa's question was, um, what do you hope poses lasting impact will be not only um, on not only people, but the entertainment industry as a whole? You know, I like growing up as a young boy, like I didn't really see a whole lot of shows uh, where I felt represented, where I felt like I could see myself. Um, and I know that that experience isn't unique to me. So I think my hope for Pose is that 
that it impacts the decision makers, the gatekeepers of the industry to consider telling stories that on the surface may be considered niche. Um, because I think those stories have value, you know, and those stories deserve to be told. Um, and, you know, as I unapologetic, unapologetically used to say at the beginning of, of the first season, you know, if we can have, you know, 20 shows about cops and 20 shows about lawyers and, you know, it's like, why can't we have 20 shows about LGBT people? You know, it's just, it's really crazy to me that you, you, when you look at the current landscape of television, it's like, there's only ever enough space for one, for one, you know, whatever the other is. Right. So it's like, you know, if we already have a show that centers black people, well, I don't know if we can do another one. You know, if we all already have a show that centers, you know, LGBT people, it's like, well, we have that one. We're good. Um, you know, like if, if anyone here has had actually watched Pose and if you're familiar with the show Transparent, you know that those two shows really are very different. Mm-hmm. The only thing that really connects Transparent and Pose is that there's a character on it that happens to be trans. That's it. Thematically, the shows really are not similar. They're not. But when I was going out and, po- and, and shopping Pose around, like when I was actively pitching it right before meeting Ryan, I cannot tell you the number of people who would say to me, what's the difference between this and Transparent? And it's like, well, clearly then you're not listening to the pitch if that's the question that you're asking. You know? But I think that gives you a sense of some of the short-sightedness, right? So you all may be going out with a project and it, I, I really love specificity. And I think to me, that's ultimately what niche is. Like niche isn't niche, niche is specific. I think that's just niche is coded language within the industry as a way to like not have you push your project further along, right? So they're going to say, oh, your project's very niche. It feels really small. So that way then, you know, it's an excuse for them to say, pass, we don't want to do it. Um, And I think what Pose has proven um, A, in finding an audience and then B, in like in winning you know, lots of accolades and winning an Emmy, getting lots of awards is that ultimately these types of shows absolutely will find an audience. There is an audience for them. It's just whether or not you value that. And so I would hope that that's one of the lasting impacts of Pose, that it just cracks the door open so that everyone that has a story to tell has an opportunity to tell it. Because at this point, I just, to get on my soapbox for a second, the reality is that there are hundreds of places for content to live at this point. And those places are also varied. So you could go to the studios and the networks and have a show on a network like NBC. You can have it on a basic cable like, you know, FX. You can have it on premium cable like HBO. You can have it on streaming like Hulu or Netflix. You can have it on your phone or an app like Quibi. You know, like there's just content is abundant. It is everywhere. So when you are getting pushed back, when you all just eventually come into the industry and you're pushing your content, like don't let people tell you, you know, that there isn't a world where your content can exist. Like to me, that's bullshit. It's like, no, the content can exist, you know? And I think what's really important is just that you have a very clear voice and understanding of your material and you have a passion for it. You know, the reason that there was such deep resilience for me when it came to Pose was because to me, it was an important story that mattered and I was going to make it happen. Like I was going to tell that story. I think for the folks, when I hear about people who eventually stop pushing to tell a story, my first, my first thought is always, well, I guess that story just wasn't that important to you. Otherwise you would have kept pushing to tell it. So make sure that you are really, truly passionate about the story that you want to tell and persist. You know, you mentioned that you worked uh, for universities as director, advisor, uh, a lot of different capacities. What advice would you give students under these circumstances, under the the lockdown circumstances, if they were struggling or trying to adapt? um, What would you tell students that came to you for advice? This is interesting because I I recently, I was invited to like a graduation ceremony that was done over Zoom recently. And I gave um, an address. And one of the things that I said to the students is that this moment right now, this period of time, it doesn't define you. It cannot define you. It will not define you. And you should not allow it to define you. So I think that to me would be the most important piece of advice. Like I know it's, it's difficult when you're 
stuck in a in an apartment and you know you don't have you know for me as like an extrovert like I get my energy from being around people so um you know it's tough to sort of feel like you can't connect with folks and you can't have that in-person um contact but the reality is that this period of time like it doesn't take away your talent it doesn't take away your voice um it doesn't strip you of all of the work that you've been doing up until this point you know so i think for me because i always believe that the uh, to be like very like hoity toity i do believe that like there's a lesson in everything and to me the lesson in this period is just for all of you to know and, and i'm guessing most of you are all like still in your 20s um what's really critically important for you to remember in this period is that this is just one roadblock and there are going to be roadblocks along the way you know like there's going to be other periods of time where things don't go the way you want them to um and and that's okay you know like that's just a natural rhythm and a part of life you know kind of like a roller coaster life is just always going to be up and down and it, there's this period of time where it feels like we're all in this downward slope but i think you have the ability to change your trajectory you know so in this period of time where you are home continue to reflect on everything we've been talking about today what is your voice what is your passion what are the kinds of stories that you want to tell um i think to go back to a question that miles asked earlier like one of the things that i do and i still do it cuz i actually like i have my book here and and every year i go through you know and i write like i have my vision my values both personal and professional and then i write down like my life vision personal and professional and when i do that i also something that i used to do with my students when i worked in higher ed is that i would sort of break that down in terms of goals that i have for myself for one year for 3 years and then for 5 years and the purpose of doing that is that it gives me a very clear trajectory you know so i know i want to be moving north and i have identified exactly what north is so that any time in a period like now where it feels like you know we're kind of fumbling in the dark um it that's okay it's like yeah i may not necessarily be able to see and feel tangibly what's around me but for sure i know i know what my north star is and so i can keep moving toward that and so i think that's what this period really should be for all of you is just spend some time reflecting on what it is that is the most important to you and what your long-term goals are you know so that way again coming out of this you feel energized to keep moving towards all of that thank you so much for coming in and and talking to the class today it's been very inspiring thanks yeah no thank you and you know again i like i know that this isn't a fun period but again i think you all are in a place that whenever i have an opportunity to talk to to students like there's always like this little for those of you who like to ride roller coasters um and i'm i'm a roller coaster fiend you know that feeling that you get in the pit of your stomach right before you're about to drop like i always have that feeling in the pit of my stomach whenever i'm talking to students because i always feel like shit like you are just in such a great exciting place and like i remember being in that position that you all are in where it's like the world is your oyster and the sky is the limit and there's just so many things you can be doing and to me that is like the most exciting place with all that said i'm also an anal retentive virgo and i also know that you know i get in my head a lot and sometimes i overthink things and so i understand that you can also be riddled with anxiety um and that still happens by the way like every morning i wake up and i have anxiety about something but the reality is like the position you all are in i think is wildly exciting because to me it's like damn like you're right at the start where you have you know you're just all still potential you know and there's just you have this ability to really map out exactly what you want your career to look like and what you want it to be and who you want to be and what you want to say and whether you know it or not like that's a really 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 exciting place to be and the industry that i am part of really loves 
um, similar to, you know, like Christopher Columbus, they love to claim that they, you know, discovered something new, even if it was always there. And so all of you are just who you are, but the industry honestly, genuinely is waiting for you. You know, when I was at UCLA, I had um, Gary Levine, who's one of the, the um, I think he's a president of, of Showtime. Um, he went to my alma mater um, and he was kind enough to take time out to meet with me before I graduated. And he gave me the following, um, is it an analogy or a metaphor? I'm not sure which one it is. But basically what he said to me is Hollywood is like a brick wall and you right now are on one side of that wall. And so your job is to find the crack somewhere within one of those bricks. And then once you find the crack, you just need to chisel through it. He was like, trust me when I say once you break through and you get to the other side, there are going to be so many people there waiting for you with open arms, wanting to help you, wanting to see you succeed. And at the time I was like, yeah, that sounds like bullshit. Like, can someone just like throw me a rope? Like, can someone help me get over the wall? Like, I just, this is like, I don't really, I don't want to have to look for the crack. It's like, this seems like a lot of work. Um, but the reality is like, that's the truth. Right. And so I said, okay, fine. I'll find the crack. I'll break through the crack. And then I did. And it was absolutely the truth. Like I, I cannot tell you the amount of goodwill that I've had thus far in my career. And the reality is like, I'm sure there are people who I don't even know who have done me huge favors throughout my career, but it's crazy. The number of people who will just reach out to you and do great things for you without you asking. And that is the truth. So all that to say, know that the industry is waiting for you and waiting for your voice. Um, You just have to hone your abilities and then, you know, find the crack and then let us know who you are. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.